Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasak. And I'm Lori Jennings. In this episode, we spotlight Part 3, the conclusion of our Jackson County, Florida series. If you haven't already listened to Parts 1 and 2, we recommend you go and take a listen to learn about the history of Jackson County in Northwest Florida. This small, rural county is the backdrop for three cold case playing cards and five victims from the Florida deck. In episode seven and eight, we talked about the unsolved murders of an elderly, wealthy couple, Robert and Catherine McRae, and the double homicide of 25-year-old Teresa Hall and her five-year-old daughter, Tiffany. Today's episode is our third Jackson County card in the solved but bizarre and shocking case of Gail Sands. This is the conclusion we promised in the previous episodes. It begins with a homicide of a small town nurse and ends with a revenge murder that catapulted a small town sheriff and his beloved hometown into the national spotlight. Now, the case we're going to tell you about today, the case from Jackson County, is the third part series, as Lori mentioned in this. It's a little different than what we're used to, and we're going to tell you why. As you guys know, if you listen to part one and two, we went to Jackson County and sat with Sheriff Johnny P. McDaniel as he told us about the Robert and Catherine McRae case that you heard about in part one. And he also told us about the murder of Tiffany and Teresa Hall, as you heard about in part two. As we sat and talked to Sheriff McDaniel, he told us about Gail Sands in the case there, which was absolutely fascinating. But I'll tell you, we weren't recording. We weren't expecting to go into this case because it did include the murder of his wife, Melly McDaniel. But he did go into the case. He told us about it. And again, we weren't recording. We were just listening to him. And in hindsight, do we wish we were recording? Of course. But we still felt like we really needed to share this story with you guys. And Sheriff McDaniel gave us permission to do so. So um, what you're about to hear is a little different than the way that we normally do things. Lori and I are going to tell you about the case and about what Sheriff McDaniel told us. And then you'll also hear from Jennifer Bernier, who is from that area and helped us tell this story as well. So although this case is solved, we really felt like it was important to include the Gail Sands case and the Melly McDaniel case in this as well. So take a listen. Thanks for joining us on Dealing Justice for part three, the conclusion of Jackson County, Florida. This is episode 11, part three, the conclusion of the Jackson County cases. Gail Sands, Four of Diamonds, Florida Deck time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us back to Jackson County, Florida, for a bizarre and tragic ending for a beloved small-town sheriff whose commitment to public service would cost him everything. 
Gail Heap grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis called Bridgeton, Missouri. She was a petite blonde who was described as a tomboy who loved animals and nature, but she was also smart and outgoing. It is obvious Gail was a well-rounded teenager by her high school resume. She was in 4-H, junior achievements, and a cheerleader. Gail graduated from Pattonville High School in 1966. After graduating, she went to school for nursing and received her degree. Gail was close with her family and even spent time in Colorado where she lived with her sister. The two would spend their day skiing and hiking and although she was tiny, she was a dynamo. Gail eventually headed to California where she went on to her next adventure as a member of the Army National Guard. It was here that Gail Heap met Lionel Sands during a training session. According to an article written and researched by Chad Garrison in the Riverfront Times, Lionel told Gail that he was an orphan who grew up in many foster homes. Despite his harsh upbringing, he had a master's degree from both Pepperdine University and Western Kentucky University. And although he was employed by the National Guard, Lionel told Gail he was an army ranger in special operations. At this point, Gail was in love, but her family did not share in her sentiments towards Lionel. Gail told her family about Lionel's childhood, his education, and about his involvement in the U.S. Special Forces as an Army Ranger. And while Gail swallowed his stories hook, line, and sinker, her family was a bit more skeptical, and the fact that they had never actually met Lionel in person didn't make things any better. 1981, Salt Lake City, Utah. It is Gail and Lionel's wedding day, and the first time that Gail's family would actually meet Lionel. And from what they knew, they weren't impressed. But worse is what they didn't know. There was a little problem. Lionel Sands was already married to a different woman. This wedding was all for show, at least on Lionel's part. Eventually, in 1983, the pair would legally marry after Lionel finalized his divorce from his previous wife. Gail's family continued to see unsettling changes in Gail, and in the coming years, things would only get worse. Jackson County, Florida, 1986. The Sands purchased 120 acres just outside of Mariana, Florida. Gail's parents traveled to the area to help the couple build their home on the land. Gail's parents soon discovered that Lionel would not be helping them. Over the next few years, Lionel had a series of jobs that required him to live elsewhere. Lionel once informed them that he was working at the Pentagon and was watching them over surveillance. In 1991, Lionel, at the age of 45, retired from the National Guard. After losing a brief job at the River Junction Work Camp, which was a minimum security prison in Chattahoochee, Florida, he worked as a farmer growing pine trees to harvest for telephone poles. Again, according to Chad Garrison's article, the couple settled into life in Jackson County. Gail was the one bringing in the real money as she worked full-time as a nurse for the prison connected to the River Junction facility. Hang tight because this story gets crazy and we'll have to give you more background information. In 1993, Lionel had spent 40 days in jail for armed robbery, trespassing, and kidnapping an acquaintance at gunpoint. The charges were later dropped, but this is rumored to be where his simmering hatred for Sheriff John McDaniel apparently started. What happened, according to reports, is that Lionel had a questionable relationship with a man by the name of Kenneth Swain, 
When Gail was away for a nursing conference in March of 1993, Kenneth came to stay with Lionel for a week. The two men reportedly never left the property during that time. Then one morning, Lionel borrowed Kenneth's truck and drove to the house of a former co-worker, Earl Pettis. Earl had actually replaced Lionel when he got fired from his job from the River Junction work camp earlier that year. In his deposition, Earl says he arrived at his house to find his former colleague parked in his driveway. Lionel told Earl he wanted to talk with him, and so Earl invited him in. As Earl turned around, he says Lionel had a gun and pointed it at his face. Lionel demanded money from Earl, and when Earl told him he didn't have any, Lionel made Earl get in Kenneth's truck that he borrowed and started driving to the bank. At a stoplight, Earl jumped out of the truck and ran away. An hour later, sheriff's cars arrived at Lionel's home with lights and sirens, and Lionel came out of the house in a pink dress. That's how Lionel ended up in the county jail where he would stay for 40 days. He was livid about the charges and believed the sheriff was setting him up with false charges. The district attorney, for whatever reason, declined to press charges for the kidnapping. And Lionel told Gail and other friends that Earl Pettis had made the whole thing up. But while he was in jail, Lionel Sands claimed the police had pulled his wife over, Gail, twice to harass her. According to Lionel, his wife had taken an interest in solving an unsolved murders, Teresa and Tiffany Hall, and she was close to solving the case. As if these unsolved murders weren't enough for Jackson County, Lionel Sands was now convinced there was a conspiracy against him, and Sheriff McDaniel was the ringleader. According to Lionel, Gail was getting close to solving the murder of Teresa and Tiffany Hall, and Sheriff McDaniel didn't like it. So he created an elaborate scheme by having Lionel taken to jail and his wife Gail harassed all in the hopes that she would back off her amateur sleuthing. Now, Lionel is creating chaos as his anger towards Sheriff McDaniel is growing and will eventually reach a boiling point. June 9th, 2001. 53-year-old Gail Sant was found dead at the bottom of her nearly empty swimming pool in her backyard. Her body was submerged in a little over 24 inches of murky rainwater in the bottom of a debris-filled pool. A 16-foot aluminum ladder lay across the back of Gail's body. The police arrived to find Lionel Sands and Daniel Brown on the premises. When questioned, Lionel claims he and his friend Daniel were doing yard work on the property and heard nothing. Both Lionel and Daniel claimed they had been working outside that morning and headed into Lionel's house for a quick lunch break. Lionel told police he noticed the ladder was missing from its usual spot next to the pool. He went to investigate and soon discovered his wife's submerged body. When questioned, police discovered Lionel's friend, 54-year-old Daniel Brown, happened to be a three-time convicted felon. His convictions included drug charges, theft, and in 1987, he was charged with four counts of aggravated assault and was sentenced to eight years in a Texas prison. Ironically, Lionel met Daniel in 1993 at a Bible study that he was attending after his arrest for kidnapping. Lionel explained to investigators that his wife must have fallen into the pool while trying to move the heavy ladder. However, things weren't adding up when the day after her death, the medical examiner noted a round fracture in the back of Gail's skull that he believed to be caused by a hammer or similar type of blunt object. The medical examiner concluded this was no accident. It was homicide. The 
the Jackson County Sheriff's Office prime suspect was Gail's husband, Lionel Sands. His only alibi was Daniel Brown, and the two were as thick as thieves. Both Lionel and Daniel claimed they were within eyesight of each other all day, and neither were responsible for Gail's death. Weeks after Gail's death, Lionel gave Daniel Brown several hundred dollars and the title to Gail's car, a Geo Metro. Soon after, Daniel relocated to Monroe, Louisiana. Gail had life insurance, three policies to be exact. One of them purchased just months before her death. The policies totaled more than $500,000. The beneficiary to her policies? You guessed it, her husband, Lionel Sands. Thursday, February 14, 2002. The Panama City News-Herald confirmed the Sheriff's Office investigation by publishing an article with the headline, Jackson, quote, drowning, ruled a homicide. The article also disclosed the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the Florida Department of Insurance Fraud Division were assisting in the investigation. The family and the Jackson County Sheriff's Office had also established a reward of up to $15,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. It did not name Lionel Sands specifically as the suspect in the article, but Lionel knew he was being highly considered as the investigator's main suspect. Lionel was determined to fight the allegations. In February, he attended a fundraising event where he cornered the then-Governor Jeb Bush to complain to him that Sheriff John McDaniel was trying to frame him. According to the book The High Sheriff, the governor promised to have someone look into this. And in April of that year, Lionel Sands met with an agent with the FDLE. Reading from the article, Lionel Sands ended the interview with, My wife, a perfectly healthy woman, is found dead in my pool. I have one witness, and lo and behold, he is a convicted felon. I couldn't have picked a worse predicament if I tried. What can I do? What can I say? I don't know anyone who had a grudge against Gail. But again, everything gets back to the halls. Lionel was trying anything to get the focus of his wife Gail's murder off of him, no matter how crazy and outlandish it sounded. In 2003, the FDLE closed the case on Gail Sands' murder. There was not enough evidence found to charge Lionel Sands or anyone else for that matter. Although the investigation went cold, the case remained open with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. Here's retired Sheriff Johnny McDaniel. There's more than one way to clear cases. You can clear a murder case or any case exceptionally, meaning that you cannot prosecute for one reason or the other, but you know who did it. You just can't prove it in court beyond a shadow of doubt. Gail Sands' story was put on the cold case playing cards in hopes that since both Daniel Brown and Lionel Sands did time in jail, that perhaps someone might have information. Investigators were open to anything to get justice for Gail Sands. March 2006. Five years after Gail's tragic death, Lionel was still trying to collect on his wife's policies. But because her case was still open with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office and Sheriff McDaniel still had Lionel as the primary suspect in her death, none of the insurance companies would pay out. Lionel continued to claim that his wife's death was an accident and that he was due the money. And in the five years since Gail's death, Sheriff McDaniel was patiently waiting for new evidence to surface. And in the meantime, he moved on. But Lionel Sands did not. In fact, he was seething and plotting. 
and marinating on his hatred for the man he believed was the root of all of his problems. That man was Sheriff John P. McDaniel. One of the insurance companies filed a lawsuit asking a federal judge to decide who should get the insurance money. Lionel Sands or Gail's mother, who was also listed on her policy as second in line behind Lionel to receive her life insurance payout. Because Gail's family believed Lionel was also behind Gail's death, they went after Lionel in a civil court case. Now, this is where it could get legally complicated, but even though the criminal case was stagnant, if a judge found Lionel guilty in the civil trial, he could not benefit from her death financially, and the insurance policy would go to Gail's mother. This infuriated Lionel. It's now January 2007, six years after Gail's death, and now a trial date is set two weeks out. Lionel shocked everyone by filing a motion to drop the case and his claims to his wife's life insurance. Tuesday, January 30th, 2007, what Sheriff McDaniel calls the most horrible day. The day after Lionel Sands' rescheduled trial was set to begin. Lionel Sands and Daniel Brown somehow ended up back together again. Lionel packed Daniel's Crown Victoria with latex gloves, bleach, duct tape, vinegar, trash bags, and plastic handcuffs, an obvious indicator of their evil intentions. Lionel dressed himself in camo fatigues and combat boots while also wearing a wig, fake mustache, and makeup. His friend Daniel dressed up like a Blues Brother character wearing a dark suit, tie, hat, and makeup as well. Both men were armed. Around 4.45 p.m., the two men pulled up behind Sheriff John McDaniel's 51-year-old wife, Mellie McDaniel, on her way home from the grocery store. Mellie was loved by everyone in the community, just like her husband, Sheriff John McDaniel. Longtime Jackson County resident Jennifer Bernier tells us more. She was so well-known in the community as well and worked with so many different people. She was a victim's advocate. She did some work at the Sheriff's Department. I mean, so many people knew her as well, and she was a really pretty lady. She was always made up and had her hair done, and she was the perfect wife for the sheriff. That's how I looked at her. Mellie McDaniel was on the phone with her husband, Sheriff John McDaniel. A few minutes into their discussion, she told her husband that she had just turned into the driveway and a strange car was turning in behind her. Sheriff McDaniel instructed her to stay in the car and tell them she wasn't interested in anything they may be selling. After several minutes of silence, he heard his wife again. And this time, it was a blood-curdling scream. Sheriff McDaniel turned his vehicle around right in the middle of Highway 90 and sped towards his home. 4.49 p.m. Sheriff McDaniel radioed for all officers to respond to his residence. Deputy Mike Altman arrived two minutes later. He called in the stolen plates on the Crown Vic, and then minutes later, the deputy came on the radio again yelling, Get off of me, is the last thing anyone heard him say. Jennifer Bernier remembers this day well. The day that that happened, I remember it so well because it happened in the afternoon and I was actually on my way home from work. Me and one of my coworkers, we, we live in Mariana, but we drive in Chipley. So I was actually behind him 
And it was just like all of a sudden, law enforcement just speeding by, just six or seven cars. You know, they almost ran my co-worker off the road uh, because we didn't expect it. You know, they just, all of a sudden, they were just there and they were headed towards the sheriff's home. And it's not right in Marion. It's kind of out a little ways on one of the, the roads that actually leads to Alabama. But it was just all of a sudden, and it wasn't just the sheriff's department. It was all law enforcement, all fire and rescue just headed into that one direction. So we knew that it was really bad. Four fifty-three p.m., Sheriff McDaniel and two deputies arrive at his home to see Lionel ducking behind the Crown Vic. A shootout immediately occurs, and within minutes, Lionel Sands was shot dead. He was shot in the neck, underarm, leg, and stomach. Daniel Brown was shot twice in the gut and died soon after. Sheriff McDaniel found his wife's body and his responding deputy's body lying next to each other in front of Melly's car. Lionel Sands had shot her in the back of the head, execution style, as she kneeled in the driveway. Deputy Altman was shot in the face, which didn't kill him, so Lionel shot him two more times in his back. In seven minutes, it was all over. Here's Jennifer Bernier again. It was just awful. Um, At the time, I actually had a cousin that was a deputy during that time, and it was they were all heartbroken. I mean, they all gathered at the hospital, you know, when they found out that she was not going to make it or she, that she didn't make it. You know, it's hard for to see grown men cry, but that's what they described to me as those deputies just lost it when they found out she was gone and their fellow officer was gone as well. So I can't imagine what that must have been like for them. You know, it, for the nurses and the doctors in the ER, I'm sure that was traumatizing, and as well as the EMS personnel working that too. But when that happened with the sheriff and his wife, it was you just it felt like everybody got a gut punch in their stomach. More than 100 law enforcement officers eventually made their way to sheriff's home and searched through the night Tuesday and into Wednesday morning. They scoured through a four-mile area around his home to secure it and making sure there wasn't an additional gunman or looking for any evidence. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Sheriff McDaniel's first thought was that the attacks might be connected to the then 18-year-old unsolved case of the McCrays. But as soon as one of the deputies informed him that the man in camouflage was Lionel Sands, the suspect in the six-year-old murder case of his wife, Gail Sands, Sheriff McDaniel realized what was going on. The day before the shootout, Lionel Sands learned that he was going to be liable for about $30,000 in legal expenses from the federal court fight over his wife's insurance. It seems Lionel had been planning this for some time. Exactly what his and Daniel's plan was is not entirely sure, but it was evil, and their plans died with the two men. Inside the Crown Vic were several unsigned letters that it seemed Lionel had planned to have the sheriff and his wife sign. One of the letters was to Gail's mother in St. Louis with a note exonerating Lionel Sands of any wrongdoing in his wife's death. Another letter was to look like Melly wrote and signed it involving a crazy scheme stating that Lionel was framed for Gail's death by the sheriff because Lionel had uncovered a conspiracy within law enforcement. 
It was rumored, but not confirmed by the sheriff's office, that a hit list was also found in Lionel Sands' home. On that list were said to be Gail's family members, their attorney, as well as Lionel's own attorney. It was also discovered Lionel had checked out a book from the library recently, The Hostage, a novel written by W.E.B. Griffin, which is a fictional story of the kidnapping of a diplomat's wife who is forced to watch as her husband is murdered. Jennifer Bernier tells us more. Yeah, I remember them talking about they had this one book, but it was pretty much a a book on how to commit crimes and kidnappings and things like that. They had that book in the car with them. So they were like doing like a play-by-play of that book when they're committing that crime. And then it was just crazy. It was like they had like a homicide kit in the back of their car. They didn't even recognize who they were, you know, because... They had these disguises on and wigs and makeup. They didn't realize who they were. And I believe uh, when the sheriff got there and looked at them, he could not tell who they were at first. So it was just awful. Just awful. Here's retired Sheriff Johnny McDaniel. You know what it's like to be the survivor of a homicide. You know what it is. I've lived it twice, you know. So you put yourself in their position. You subrogate yourself for the victim of crimes of the family members. And that makes you want to solve it even more, you know. And then, of course, you want to have empathy for people when you have a dead person. And you've got to go tell somebody that somebody's dead. You don't do it just, you know, you got to have your heart into what you're doing and do it softly and, and do it the way it ought to be done. And the, that's just the height of my career was trying to do everything for everybody. I'm a very strong faith-based person and I, I, I go to God for my strength. And that's the truth of the matter. This incident was perhaps the end of an error as John P. McDaniel lovingly referred to as Johnny Mac was to end his time as sheriff. From 1980 until 2008, he served his community. But after this, he found himself at a crossroads. He retired in November 2008. John P. McDaniel started his career as sheriff of Jackson County with the tragedy and death of his father by a serial killer. He lost both his son and his mother during his service as sheriff and now ending his term in the most unfathomable way, the death of his wife, Melly McDaniel, in his own driveway. With all that goes into the controversy of being in law enforcement these days, hopefully this story gives the other side account of the people who give so much to their community. All of the cases we covered in part one, part two, and now in part three of the Jackson County series, and including Sheriff McDaniel, really had amazing people in it. And the world is a different place without the minute. So here's a poem that we feel like covers all the amazing people, including Sheriff McDaniel, in this three-part series. Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Ralph Emerson. Thank you guys for sticking around and continuing to listen to this three-part series on Jackson County, Florida. It was extra special for us because 
Again, like we told you guys, we got to go and talk to Sheriff McDaniel about all three of these cases. And he went into depth about all of them. So that is where we got the information on what happened with his wife. And we truly appreciate him sharing all of that information with us. So, you know, again, I think in this case, we don't have to wrap out. We're not looking about who did it. We know who did this one. Right. What's so important, too, is just learning and meeting with the sheriff and just seeing all the resiliency that he's gone through and just the heartache that he carries with him was so important for a community that loved him for so much that he served for nearly 30 years. Right. And that area, it's so small, but again, it's vast. Like we said, over 900 miles. But, you know, when it comes to the population, I think the reason why Sheriff McDaniel kept getting voted in is because, you know, people knew that he really cared about this. Um, He cared about these cases. And for such a small town, for them to have to go through, number one, I mean, obviously there were uh, there were other murders, but, you know, we're covering the the murders that were on the on the cards. So for that small area to go through, number one, the McRae's, which is still unsolved. And we talked about, you know, the possible suspects that are that are there. I think that case is so interesting just because obviously um, the bullet that was used, that is definitely not a standard bullet um, by any stretch of the imagination. And the fact that there was that possible couple in Tuscaloosa that it could have been um, attached to. Also, you know, was it a robbery? Was it somebody just going by? Again, we talked about all those cases. We just implore you to, you know, go in and maybe take an interest in these cases and go and do the research for yourself. There's so much information there. We just try to give you guys enough that you're interested and hopefully that you'll go in and and take a look for yourself. Exactly. And I think that um, Chad Garrison was the writer of the River Times article. But I think he's one of the only few people that have actually interviewed Gail Sands' family that's out there, that's printed out there, at least in this time. It happened so long ago, some of it may not still be available and um, had some information that was never before published that we could find. But um, but that's where some of that information came from, too, because he actually interviewed the family members. There was a lot of good information there. So he had the McRae's and then You know, we had the terrible case of Teresa and Tiffany Hall, which, you know, got roped into to this case, which that is, you know, just so crazy. But um, but Teresa and Tiffany Hall, again, that case remains unsolved. So um, also such a small, small place that if somebody knows anything in either one of those cases, we just ask that you come forward. But also if the person or the suspect they think is already dead, is the county not going to then pay money because they think, well, our main suspect who we think did it, we just can't prove it. We don't want to put the money into it, but therefore it's still attached to other people who could be alive. I don't think that's the case. I think that if they have something specifically and they know, but you know, again, it's the police department. It's what's on the books. It's not about we think we know who did it. I still think if they can prove specifically that they know who did it, that they will. And we've seen that because that's happened um, over the course of the last couple of years, especially with the ancestry DNA that's come out, you know. And and again, the thing about the ancestry DNA that coming out is it kind of came out of nowhere and it was like, oh, how about this? But it changed so much. I mean, there's there's so many cases now that they're excited about and hope that they can solve. So we never know what's around the bend. I think on both of these cases, the good thing is, is that there is evidence. There is some type of evidence out there on 
um, Robert and Catherine McRae and Teresa and Tiffany Hall. There is evidence. So who knows, you know, what's going to come out of that. And I and once again, you know, um, new sheriff comes in, new administration comes in. You never know what's going to what's going to turn out. But we just um, are so grateful to the people of Jackson County for speaking with us. And, And once again, both of you and I have went there. I am from there. Love that area. Um, and, why, and we just hope that you guys got a really interesting glimpse into this area and kind of the craziness that surrounds it. And then to top it all off, I mean, the Gail Sands case. That's just one that, Lori, you and I looked up this case years ago. Yes. And we and I said, I cannot believe this is not a miniseries or a made-for-TV movie. I mean... And Gail just sounds like a wonderful woman. She was a nurse. Sounds like she was a spitfire back in the day with her sister when you read some of the stories of them skiing and just doing things. And she was a very smart woman. But, you know, love is blind sometimes. And it just seemed that she was really blind when it came to Lionel's lies. And then she just it just shows you like you get mixed up with the wrong person. And like she never knew his capabilities. But when you read some about stuff about his background and just other stuff about him. And it was also rumored that um, he struggled with his sexuality. And, you know, that that him and Daniel may not have just been friends, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I don't I don't I think you and I have heard that that wasn't just rumored. I think that lots of people said that that was the case, that he um, was confused on his sexuality. And once again, I think that you have to consider the date um, and the place that this was in. It probably was not going to be very well received. But I think not just that, Um, this stuff may be a symptom of what's happening in somebody's in somebody's head. If you're predisposed to be a killer and, you know, you find somebody else who wants to go down that path with you. I don't know. Maybe there's an attraction that happens when you find somebody who gets you. And that may be what sparks it as well. Lori, you and I have talked about. The fact that in these three cases, all that has come up, whether it's serial killers we've talked about, we've got, you know, men who dressed up and who went after the sheriff's wife, chased her down, killed her, killed the other officer. Um, and then the sheriff and his guys come and then to to kill them on top of that. So, you know, I think that there's so many twists and, and turns um, in these cases that uh, y- you and I both, like we said, this could be a TV series for sure. Exactly. And so many innocent, innocent victims. You know, I just think of Melly just having no idea that this stranger turning behind her in a driveway would want ill intentions towards her. Right. And the fact that Lionel Sands was that angry with Sheriff McDaniel that it it wasn't enough to just go after him and to try to hurt him. He wanted to hurt him in the worst way. And he was willing to, you know, go to jail or, or obviously die for it. Now, I think that, you know, something that Sheriff McDaniel brought up to us is that with the kit that they had there, the bleach, the gloves, um, all the other stuff that they had, you know, he brought up what were their intentions, you know? Um, What exactly was it? And that terrifies him to this day, the thought of what were they wanting to do? I think they did not think they were going to have to kill Melly right there. They didn't realize she was on the phone with Sheriff McDaniel when all of this was going on. So Sheriff McDaniel was able to get an officer there right away. And unfortunately, he's the one that was killed. 
but the other officers came running. So really what Sheriff McDaniel brought up is what were their intentions? Um, you know, your mind can go into a lot of different avenues of what they were actually planning for her that day. And, you know, th- God knows that this was terrible, but thank God that she was spared from, I think, what they were actually planning for her. I didn't even think about that, you know, till, till all that is spelled out. You know what I mean? It was just the whole thing. Ugh, it's just tragic. But we appreciate Sheriff McDaniel sharing that heartbreaking story with us as well. Yeah. And again, because they had the book, The Hostage there, you know, that plays into the fact of that they were whatever they were going to do to her. They wanted Sheriff McDaniel to have to see it is what they think. So. So, yes, we do appreciate Sheriff McDaniel so much. And again, his book is The High Sheriff, written by R.L. Dodson. And it was a fascinating read. And um, thank you to Jennifer Bernier. Thank you to Marsha Adkins. There was just so many amazing people that came forward to talk to us and to share their little county with us. And, um, And we just could not say thank you enough. And we go from Florida to another state on next time on Dealing Justice. So... We were so excited. This is the first time that we've did a three-part series. We hope that you guys enjoyed it. But our next episode, we're going to return back to our normal and follow up with a new case and a new deck of playing cards. And we hope that we can deal you guys in for that. Until then, we'll see you the next time. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Dealing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE Special Agent Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us next time on Dealing Justice. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.